So welcome, everybody. This is Heidi Trost. I am the host of Human-Centered Security. And today I am super excited to introduce Christian Rohr. He is the Senior Director User Experience at McAfee. And he was actually at McAfee uh, before. It's been a five-year hiatus for him. Before that, uh, he was the founder and principal at XD Strategy, which is a UX strategy consultancy. And he's the former vice president of design, research, and enterprise services at Capital One. Christian has also worked for Realtor.com. He has worked at eBay and Yahoo. And he holds a bachelor's in computer science from UC Santa Cruz and a PhD in cognitive science and education from Stanford. So welcome, Christian. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm super excited to dive in to this. But my first question for you is, you know, tell us how you got into UX user experience. Thanks, Heidi. I appreciate the introduction. Um, like many people in the UX field, I kind of found my way in by accident. Uh, <laughs> I was originally uh, studying computer science, and I got a, had about a five year career in the in the tech industry of the late eighties, kind of early nineties. And back then, uh, what I learned was that um, you know technology is pretty hard to use for a lot of people, and it really required a lot of training and a lot of education for, for people to really come to use it. I was teaching people how to use and administer the Unix system back then. And I kept thinking, you know, what is it that's keeping people from really being able to leverage this technology? And I, I at the time thought it was just about education. So I decided to go back to school and got, got a PhD in education and cognitive science at Stanford. And I, there I met um, Terry Winograd and David Kelly, um, two of the founders of our field. And they, uh, they quickly showed me that I was solving the wrong problem. I was really trying to cram more information into people's heads and find ways to do that. When in fact, the real you know problem to solve is how to design technology in a way that appeals to people and their natural way of doing things. Their, their um, kind of their proclivities, what they're willing to do, what they, what they're able to do and so on. And that's how I found myself into this whole other field of, user experience or human computer interaction. And I, I think of that as the launch of my second career um, in UX. So that's, that's how I got into it. That's awesome. So one of the things that I wanted to kind of start us off on is defining human-centered design. So as I talked to you before about, it's not something that we've really dived too deep into at you know on the podcast. So I'm wondering if you can kind of define what human-centered design is and then we'll kind of apply that to security. Sure. Well I can certainly talk a bit about how it's classically defined. Um, you know, Don Norman offers up uh, the idea that human-centered design focuses on people and it it uses a process that helps us find the right problem to solve before we jump into solution space. And it certainly includes thinking of big picture uh, issues and systemic solutions that are that that don't just address the minute or the obvious, but think about the bigger, larger picture. And there's always iteration involved. And another major feature of human-centered design is the use of of insights or research and data to inform those iterations to make sure that we are um, making them better at each each kind of cycle through. So I would say those would be kind of the hallmarks of human-centered design. And do you have any, you know, that was kind of, as Don Norman uh, 
you know, kind of defined human-centered design. Uh, do you think of it differently in practice? In practice, I would say we are almost exclusively focused on digital experiences. The, the real definition of user experience, if you want to talk about that, um, is is broader. It's much broader than uh, than it's really looking at the kind of the solutions that we might have with an entire, um, I should say, user experience might say that it, it solves problems that the you know, person has as it interacts with an entire brand or company. But in practice, how we tend to focus on problems is largely in the digital channels. And that's really how, um, how I've spent most of my career. Not that I don't care about things like service design or overall customer experience, but I think that um, I'm almost always finding myself spending time working on mobile apps or websites or desktop applications, things of that nature. Um, so I, I guess I would say from the standpoint of what does user experience focus on, that's that's it. And human-centered design is leveraged as, um, as a means to do so. Yeah, I, I wonder if people get confused about all of these. I mean, I get confused about of all the cybersecurity terms that are out there, you know, all of the different acronyms. I wonder if folks also get confused about human-centered design, user experience, customer experience. You know, from your perspective, like what's the most important thing for people to know when it comes to these terms? Well, the good news is all of those terms seem to put the put the person at the center of the process and make them be the most important part of the solution. Um, part of the reason you have confusion and overlap with these different terms is that one, they may have come from different traditions and different places. For example, customer experience has stemmed largely from more of a marketing tradition. Um, mm-hmm. User experience came more from product development and and um, and product engineering. But you know the the term experience and design; those are two terms that have been. Um, leveraged in a lot of different places. Like, like I was saying that service design overlaps with these a lot. And that came from a desire to really apply design to the problem of providing a service, uh, not just, you know, an experience. So I, I think uh, the good news is, as I say, the people are put at the center, but um, the challenge is that a lot of different functions inside a company tend to want to have a piece of that because there's a lot of power right now in, in controlling what happens to the user experience and what happens to the customer experience. Um, it is, as they say, you know, enforced or research the age of experience. So it's no wonder that so many different parts of the organization are, are clamoring for that. It's just, a, it's part of the po- political nature of corporations. All of a sudden, everyone wants to be a user experience designer, right? <laughs> or something that sounds like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think that the key thing that I'm pulling out from this is that the human, that people are at the center of it. The user is at the center of it. And it's interesting that we're talking about this because I specifically named the podcast human-centered design as opposed to user-centered design because even sometimes when we use the term user it just sounds so distant from like the actual human being. And I really, because security, I believe has that problem inherent in it. Um, I think it, I thought it was very important to say that this was human centered security as opposed to user centered security. So anyway, that's a tangent, but um, so to our next point, like why is human centered design important? 
Well, I think that human-centered design as opposed to... Let, let me just talk a bit about that term, um, user versus human, and then I can try to get into that. Okay, perfect. Um, I understand what you're saying about the, the term user. In fact, Don, Don Norman himself says that um, you know the term user kind of bothers him, and he, he prefers the word human anyway. Um, on the other hand, there there is a benefit to using the word user in that you're distinguishing yourself from talking about a customer. And in a business-to-business context, the customer and the user are not always the same, right? The people that purchase the software decide to use it. We call them the choosers. Those are not always the same as the people that use them. So the chooser is not the user. So sometimes it's useful to use the word user because you're trying to distinguish yourself from the customer. Uh, and other times, it, it, you know, like you said, it's maybe it's better just to talk about human, human-centered, and and which. But you've got to be clear about which human you're talking about. Um, are we talking about the paying customer? Are we talking about the the end user? Are we talking about someone who calls customer support? Sometimes that can get confusing. Um, or people that we interact with in the sales channels. So, so all those terms need just need some clarification. And unfortunately, you can't have, you know, you, you can't have complete un, uh, unambiguous terms. They're always going to have some definition required. Um, Absolutely. And that's a really great point. I think understanding that the people who buy the software, especially in an enterprise environment, aren't necessarily the people who are going to use the software. And as a result, some user experience decisions get made that, you know, ostracizes the person who's actually using the software day to day. So absolutely agree with you there. Yeah. But to answer your question about what, why is it so important? It's because so much, uh, so many of our experiences in technology really don't account for the humans that use them. Uh, they, they may think that they are, but it, it's hard to put the humans front and center when either we don't have easy access to them in order to be able to learn what they need and how, how well our products are actually uh, working for them. Or it could be that we just don't have the means to fully understand their needs. We don't um, the time. One of the biggest challenges that we face in human-centered design is that there's often a, a significant pressure to get the product out to market as quickly as possible. And it stems from a variety of sources, but the two co- most common ones are that uh, teams want to recognize revenue for a feature as soon as possible. They want to get it out there so that they can maybe make their numbers next quarter. But a second reason, which goes back to the to the kind of heart of human-centered design, is a lot of times companies feel like they need to get the product out there quickly in order to gather data about the product to learn whether it's actually working or whether it's um, you know got the kind of uptake that they expected. In other words, they don't, don't feel like they can learn anything until it's released. Now that is actually quite wrong because the, you know, one of the main lessons you learn when you study human centered design is that by building something extremely simple and small in terms of effort, like a low fidelity prototype, you could learn a a lot about whether or not that product or service even has value or is usable long before you commit any kind of code uh, or have spent any time building something yeah, to production value. So those are some some of the challenges uh, that we often see in human-centered design and, and how you can, one way you can just counter those is simply by demonstrating, showing the value of getting insights and making changes early, like finding bugs early in a software development process. It's always cheaper to do so- sooner than later. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make. And 
it's something that like I personally with clients have to deal with quite a bit because like you said, the, the pushback is, you know, why are we wasting, wasting, I, I put that in quotes, <laughs> why are we wasting all of this time doing this research? Let's just push it out and, and gather the data that way. But as you said, you know, the counter argument to that is we can quickly learn so much before we put any money into the development resources, which are arguably the most expensive you know, and, and push something out that, that people don't want, that they can't use, that is going to leave a bad taste in their mouth because it has a poor user experience. It's, but it, it's really difficult to get clients to kind of see the light here and that you're actually, you're actually saving resources. You're minimizing the risk, you know, and you're potentially uncovering opportunities that you never would have known otherwise. Yeah. And I think, Another reason why that's maybe sometimes still not quite understood is that the kind of data and the kind of uh, information that that a lot of decision makers and product leaders want to use is quantitative behavioral data, and they can't get that until they have a product that's that's you know out in the market where they can actually see how well it's working. But you and I know, as user experience professionals, that there's a tremendous amount of value from qualitative research, whether that's from behavioral or attitudinal, whether we're doing like a, an upfront interview or an ethnographic field study, or if we're doing a usability study, or even a concept test, you can learn a lot, even from pure qualitative methods that you just, in fact, you can learn things you can't even learn through the quantitative uh, approach. But it's difficult for a lot of decision makers to, to believe that or know that because their training in research is so minimal. They have so little knowledge about how to use and when to use qualitative research and, and whether something's even valid in a qualitative research finding that it, they just don't know how to use it. So sometimes it just comes down to, to either training people or I like to involve and, and demonstrate directly. That seems to be the best way. Yes. Same. Um, <laughs> involving, you know, your clients as, as part of that process or involving your team members if you're internally at the organization. So let's, let's segue to Talk, we, we already started talking about some of the challenges that teams in the security space face that contribute to poor user experience, but I kind of like to outline them. In a previous conversation, we kind of bulleted these out. Um, you know, and one of the things that that you mentioned was that it's a really complicated ecosystem. This security space is is super complicated. There's the user, the organization, you know, there's all of these different changing technologies, they're ever evolving uh, devices, you know, and obviously the cyber criminals are, all, are adapting their tactics as well. So I was wondering if you could expand a little bit more about that on that. Oh, yeah. And this is one of the reasons I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast, because we really want to get more user experience professionals excited about the space. Uh, and because it's complicated and, and that great designers like a complex problem space, like to solve problems in a way that's um, that's elegant, uh, but it, but when it's messy and challenging, it becomes sometimes daunting for some. But I, I think that for me personally, it's it's exciting. Let me explain a little bit why and expand on that as you asked. When I say it's an ecosystem, I mean that it's a lot more than just a company producing um, a product or service that a user uses. That's kind of the simplest form of problem that we solve in our in our industry. When you have, when you're working in security, 
even if you're working in the consumer side of security like I am, where you have a company building a product that a consumer uses or chooses and uses, you still have the outside forces of side that's trying to attack your consumers and and get their information, get their, um, we'll talk a bit about what they're trying to get, but later, but um, that complicates the matters quite a bit. So, and then you have an array of different technological platforms that users are interacting with different um, operating systems, different types of devices. And that makes life a lot more complex and difficult for a company to provide a solution that really covers them across the board. And then I guess another entrant, if you want to think of it as um, an entrant in this whole ecosystem is now the use of AI. You know, AI is being deployed in very both positive, but also nefarious um, ways in order to kind of achieve the goals of the, of the cyber criminal faction, if you will. So I feel like it's a very complicated ecosystem that has a lot of different players. It's, 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 um, you know, we already know that people get fooled by things like phishing. So making something that's easy to use and is clear and is as clear clearly coming from a legitimate source is a, you know, it's a challenge to build uh, solutions that, that people aren't suspicious of when they're really easy, because that's exactly how uh, cybercrime, you know, approaches it. (laughs) That's interesting. Do you have any examples of that? I could see my paranoid self being like, this is too easy. What's wrong with this? (laughs) You just nailed, you just hit the nail on the head is when something looks really easy to do it. Like, Oh, there's a problem with your your bank account, just click here to solve it. Oh, <laughs> and I see you log in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Then I'll just do that. Um, I, I know that we've learned the patterns to look for. And fortunately, so many scams like that are easy to spot, but mm-hmm. we can't rely on, we really can't rely on training or, or just training and other um, kind of improvements of the human condition to solve the problem. I think we have to also use better technology that, that, that goes across all these different areas to help people. You know, if you could have a way to ensure that nothing you clicked on an email could be harmful to you, that would be a lot better than just being really good at spotting phishing attacks. So right. doing that though, is tricky. I mean, it's, it, it becomes a, both a technical and a human problem to solve. Yeah. So in terms of challenges that teams in the security space face that contribute to poor user experiences. One of the other things that we've, we had talked about is that there's never enough time. There's never enough budget to do the things that do it the way that we wanted to do it. There's never enough time to include, you know, user experience research. There's not enough budget to include, uh, you know, a researcher or UX designer. So then maybe it falls on the engineer to make these design decisions. How do we counteract that? Because I I think it's often a false belief that we don't have enough time, that we don't have enough of budget. Well, it actually is a false belief, but so let's talk about why that is. And then we'll get back to how to try to solve it. Um, Part of the reason it is a false belief is because there's this thought that we've, we've, you know, we've got to get to an MVP and that's, kind of our, I, I talked about the reasons that there's a rush to get to market, but the MVP is often pursued relentlessly with the idea that we will improve upon it after it's in market. In practice, it actually is often the case that it doesn't ever get improved. We move on to the next feature and the MVP is what the product, you know, what we ship 
and it, it we don't stay focused on that area. Uh, I think that the, the part of the ways to to address this pressure um, really has to do with looking at examples where where we've created really good solutions that work that have a durable business value, and you know we often point to examples in the past. We often point to to Apple as an example of a company that that does this, but there are others as well. So we can talk about them as well. But part of the way that you can succeed in a market is by providing something that is not only better or or more effective, but actually has it's difficult to replicate. And that will come only if you invest in the more nuanced and difficult problems to solve by understanding users' needs and coming up with solutions that uniquely solve those needs. Having a great user user interface is not really a defensible thing. I mean, it doesn't really provide a defensible business position because a UI can be copied. So when we talk about UX and its value, it really stems from going deep on understanding the underlying user needs that people have and then figuring out how to creatively solve them through innovative solutions. And so, you know, if you look at something like the password problem, which is one of my favorites to talk about in security, it's it's very hard to solve for a lot of reasons. I mean, there are good password managers out there. And in fact, I helped build one when I was at Intel five years ago. Um, but the problem is, again, it's an ecosystem problem that has to be addressed across many different platforms and in many different ways to be truly solved. In fact, it probably has to be solved by getting rid of passwords, <laughs> most likely. But in the meantime, we're we're kind of stuck with them as a baseline way of authenticating at least one factor. Um, but But we've kind of gotten ourselves into this weird place where it's now... I call it the, still the world's number one usability problem as it, as it had for like the last 15 years, it's been probably the number one problem to solve and it still hasn't been solved. And do you think that that's one of my favorite topics as well as to talk about passwords? And there are actually, I have a podcast guest coming on talking about passwordless security, but you're right. We're kind of stuck in this purgatory, right? <laughs> we still have to deal with passwords and come up with some way to to deal with them. The behaviors that I observe around passwords just horrify me <laughs> as, a, as someone who's interested in cybersecurity. Um, I'm sure that, you know, as a researcher, as someone who observes behavior, you probably feel the same way sometimes. Um, you don't sound as paranoid it as comes I am. up all the time. No, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> quite concerned about it. But, you know, it's one of those things like, I just I, I think to myself why ha, why has this not been addressed sooner? And I think part of it is technology not enabling us to to really give a seamless solution until now. But I'm wondering if there's anything else you you can think of that I think you're right, that Heidi. contributes uh, to this problem. No, absolutely. Well, I'll, let me try to trace. I think how we got into this mess, <laughs> if I might. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think of it in kind of two dimensions. In, on one dimension, you have like, how easy is something to do? Is it easy or is it hard? Mm-hmm. And then on the other dimension, it's how secure is it? And is it low or medium or high security? And over time, we have, we have um, moved across this space of, uh, the, of difficulty over security. 
Whereas we're in the very beginning, let's call it the late sixties. Okay. Um, you know, passwords were used in technology. They've been used in human history for, for centuries, right? You know, we know passwords were used to, to gain entry to a certain location or place, but in terms of technology as almost as early as technology was available, we started to have some kind of a password early, obviously Unix systems had them. And the reason it was, it was, it was a good solution to a problem was that it was, it was, you just had to remember your username and password and it was, you could make it whatever you wanted. Um, and it would be, you would use it repeatedly in the same context. You would just use the same computer or a terminal and you'd log into it over and over again. And then at some point, a strong password was requested, you know, or right, we need to have a stronger password. So then you lost the ability to use whatever you wanted, but okay, because you typed it in all the time, it really didn't matter. You, you got to have the muscle memory for it. Well, then what happened is we started using all these new services, many, many services, many different systems. And, uh, they had, they could, they could have different passwords, but what people did is they didn't use different, they used the same one. And then we were told you can't use the same password. Oh, okay. So now I have to use a different password across these different devices. And that meant you had to have a way to remember multiple passwords across different systems. And, uh, then we entered an era where not only we're using, you know, a computer or uh, a service like that, uh, or maybe now you're starting to use different websites when the web era came along. And then it got, you know, even more complicated when the smartphone and mobile era exploded. So we, we suddenly were using passwords. I mean, in, we're talking hundreds on the order of a hundred different places as opposed to one or two. And each of these entities that are out there and responsible for their own little ecosystem, even if it's a big one like Google or Apple or whatever, they have their own password requirements and their own rules. And you'll, you'll see them when you try to create a password. It'll say, you, you can't create a password unless it has a special character and it can't have any of these characters in it and it must have, a, you know, whatever those are. And then, so you get these rules and you're co- trying to come up with some pattern that actually that follows these rules. And let's say you're successful in one place. And if you try to use a similar approach to a different site, they may have different rules. So then what happens is now you've got a very, very, you have, there's no way you can, from a cognitive stan- a science standpoint, you can really remember the password anymore because it's, we've gotten to this territory where it's, it's not only different rules for different locations or different um, services, but you've also got to change it every 90 days in some cases. So none of the things that, that were reasonable from a human standpoint are available to you anymore. The, the, kind of the, the ability for passwords to be an effective means of authentication has really outlived. I wouldn't say it, the idea has outlived itself. It's just that the ecosystem around it has, um, has really gone beyond its power. So that's why we really have to look to other ways of solving the problem, either through multi-factor and simpler passwords and uh, biometrics, those would be ways we could do it uh, that would be a little more human centered. Yeah, I liked how you used your system voice when you are talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tend to do that. <laughs> so, but what the reason that that made me laugh, but I think it, it it's super important, is that is how the user feels when the system is saying, you have to do this, you have to do that, this is what we require they they hear that voice in their head and they're like, well, why are you telling me what to do? What do you know? You know, and even though the password rules are 
are, are have good intentions and are, are put in place for specific reasons. And this isn't just for passwords. This is for really anything that the system is telling the user to do. You know, we really have to be thoughtful about how we communicate those messages so that, you know, people are more likely to follow them and they don't feel like they're getting yelled at, you know, or that the system is judging them right? Like it just made me think about some of those little nuanced layers of, of the user experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like the, the content strategy of most uh, security companies is, is sort of like the, the character from Tron, (laughs) very (laughs) scary, uh, you know, computer system that's appropriating various resources. Yeah. I, I think it would be, it's nice to see, um, I'd like to see more conversational content strategies. And that's something we're trying to pursue at MacV and other places I see, see have been that have been successful do that. So to kind of wrap this piece up about the challenges that uh, security teams face, I was thinking about this recently as we were recording some podcasts and that, you know, it's all well and good and easy for me to say, well, we should just do it this way. No one thinks about the user experience when it comes to security. And sometimes I I think I need to have a little bit more empathy towards the people actually, you know, in in security <laughs> who are who are coming up with these, you know, policies and rules because they're doing it for a good reason. It's not like you know, they're trying to make people's lives miserable. These policies or controls that are put into place are are to make everyone safer, the people and the organization. The kind of the goal of the podcast and, and one of the things that we want to talk about in this episode is that we kind of we have to work together. You know, the technical teams and, and the experience teams need to work together for for better solutions. I don't think anyone would say, you know, we've come up with the perfect solution, um, <laughs> especially when it comes to the user experience. But I just wanted to throw that out there. I don't know if you have anything to add about I that, do. but okay, great. Yeah, I think I think you're hitting on something here. You know, in order to work together, well, backing up a bit. The reason that we have a lot of that that kind of the posture you're talking about is that um, we're trying to solve the problem at the level of technology. You know, when we say to a user, you you must use you know a certain type of password, or we're thinking about cryptography and we're thinking about how hard it would be to crack this password. But really, security, if it's going to solve the problem effectively, it needs to think of it as a human and technology problem. It's a it's a holistic problem to solve where we consider how people or humans interact with technology and what their vulnerabilities are. And, and, and we solve the problem at that level to leverage the best of what technology can do and taking into account what people will do. And if we do that, then it maybe inspires more of us to work together, especially a broader spectrum of, of skill sets, people that have, an understanding of human beings that have a psychology background, for example, creative people who can think of solutions that aren't really obvious, like designers, you know, people who have a strong sense of the market and what's out there, like product managers and leaders, and technologists who understand how systems need to be built in a scalable way and and in a secure way. Now, if we could work those teams, work, work with those team members more effectively around a larger problem, I feel like we could get to a better solution space. A hundred percent agree. I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) So one of the things that we touched on that I think, you know, is a good kind of last question for us to dive into is the idea that UX teams often don't get enough 
resources, whether that be time or budget. So, you know, circling back to the idea that UX isn't prioritized, what recommendations do you have for teams in order to get buy-in and to get the resources that they need? Yeah, I think that for any company, whether it's in security or any other business, the best way to get prioritized or to get resourced is to be more closely connected with the the way that the company makes money or is successful. Uh, and, and successful could be partly, you know, other things besides money, like it could be the PR value or other things as well. And so when you work in a different type of company, I think it it changes. So when I worked at eBay, uh, being an e-commerce company, it's a it's a transactional company. It's essentially the the closer there's a close linkage between UX and revenue because if you can improve and streamline the UX, you could make you could make more money. You could more transactions flow through you. But for say like when I worked at Yahoo, it was a media company, and you know the argument isn't as obvious because you need people users I should say that to to come and use your services so that you can advertise to them. But improving the user experience. It's kind of a it's a tangential way to make more money because it's not as obvious um, as something like someone tweaking an ad uh, format that creates more click throughs. You know that's an obvious way. So companies don't tend to think long term, but if you can if you can figure out what companies do short term and also trace what you do to the long term, that helps. So let's get back to security to try to try to give you a good answer to this. When it comes to security, the the company you have to look at how the company is operating. Is it a sales driven company, one that basically succeeds because its sales force is very um, effective at, and that happens a lot in B two B security, um, enterprise security companies, or is it one that succeeds because it is technically you know the the most secure. Or does it succeed because it has the greatest appeal and it's easy to, it's very accessible to the consumer and easy to use? It depends on how the company is positioned and how it thinks of its pathway to success. Understanding and knowing what the corporate, I like to think of them as corporate currents of thought, what those currents of thought are, once you know what they are, then you can <laughs> throw your kayak onto the, onto the current and ride it and and try to leverage it and try not to get caught in those eddies where you swirl around trying to tell people that they should do things they don't really want to do that are not natural for the company to pursue. You you really have to figure out what your company's made of at the moment. You know, part of the reason I decided to come back to McAfee was because, you know, it it is going through an era where it is truly trying to become much more customer obsessed and and care about the the user and the the customer. And that's something that didn't exist five years ago. Um, it, it's not that they didn't care about the customer, but it just they didn't quite put the priority that's being placed on it now. So figuring out what your corporate values and your processes are for success is the very first step. And then from there, you can, you can kind of build a roadmap out to show your ROI and how you impact you know, the company itself. Yeah, I feel like we could have probably have another podcast on UX metrics and how we can measure progress. But I'm wondering if we can just kind of touch on that because I think sure. I think you even said this in another podcast that 
you know, part of getting stakeholder buy-in is ensuring that we can kind of talk the talk, right? That we can measure progress, that we can measure the effectiveness of UX changes. So I don't know if you have any examples of this, of, you know, of this being successful, but I think this is something that, you know, people listening to the podcast might be interested in hearing about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think there's, you have an opportunity to do two things. One, demonstrate that you do understand the language of the business to a degree. Um, you don't have to be a, an, MBA, an MBA per se, but you do need to know what the, what metrics that truly matter at your company and, or even that metrics matter in your company. I should say that that's an important piece because most places metrics really are, you know, what, what often matters, but then you, there is a chance to provide some degree of education or steering, if you will, of executives to think about how to make improvements that they haven't thought of before. So an example that I think uh, comes to mind here was when I was building the password manager TrueKey, when McAfee used to be part of Intel, it was called Intel Security at the time. One of the things that we found was that the company was really interested in metrics and it had all kinds of metrics it used for showing success of existing products. But for a brand new product that we were building, there were no metrics yet because it hadn't been released. And Everybody said they wanted to have a better user experience, but we didn't have an easy way to measure that. And I had actually spent quite a bit of money benchmarking some of our existing security products. I benchmarked our AV product against two competitors the year before. And, you know, we found that basically we're pretty good, either the same or a little bit better than the competitors, which is nice. But the benchmark itself took a tremendous amount of time and money. I think I spent over $100,000 on on that fairly large um, between subjects design study. And um, and so in th- when thinking about how to do that for a new product that hadn't even really been fully built yet, we had to come up with ways to, to show metrics that mattered, but that were more closely related to UX. And so I, I came up with this thing called the pure method, which is a, a simple way to to provide, I'll call them analytic numbers that demonstrate how easy or hard a product is to use, how in, in kind of a, sco- a scorecard kind of a format. And it allowed people to see how well our current product was shaping up or not shaping up. Uh, and then that gave us the, the information we needed to, to redirect our, our future sprints towards improving those usability problems. And I wrote a little bit about the Pure Method along with Jeff Soro at Measuring You. Um, who helped co-author author the paper that I uh, presented at Kai on it, and it's widely available. But my point is here is to say that it's it's good to understand that what your company values, and that if they do enjoy metrics, if that's something they care about, that you can use that to your advantage if you can find the right way to give them UX metrics. And um, the last thing I'll say on that is the metrics that are often in use with most products out there. I would call them product metrics and not user experience metrics. Like if you look at metrics that are being used uh, by by many leaders, they'll look at things like the number of downloads or the conversion rate or things of that nature. And those are, I think of those as reflections or maybe an echo of the user experience, but the user experience is not, you know, it's not really found in whether a button is pushed. It's found in what the delight or the success is that the user or the human being, to get back to your human word, does the human feel something good or 
did they accomplish something that met their needs? That's what we need to measure. It just so happens that's super hard to measure. <laughs> you know, you're not going to wire people up um, and figure things out until we get uh, AI on mass with microfacial encoding on webcams. You're not going to have this easily. So for the moment, we're stuck with things like using the pure method or benchmarking, which is expensive or, or using a product metric. Wow. I feel like we could go on and on talking about this stuff for at least another hour or two, but I do uh, want to be mindful of your time. And so last question, do you have any parting words or advice for people listening? I guess I would say that if you, if you go back to the original idea of being human centered, just looking at what people and by people we're talking about users and customers and those who are interacting with your, your brand, what do they really need and want? And not what you think they want, but looking at what they really truly need and being completely open to hearing things you didn't expect is like the very first and most important thing I would tell anybody. And then, you know, be willing to be wrong, you know, with your solutions, be willing to find that your, your product isn't perfect or that your design isn't quite right. And if you can have that growth of mindset and be open to iteration through insights, I think that's where you'll find, find yourself in a better solution space. I can almost guarantee just sprint spending a couple of sprints on iterations before you commit to code will pay off hugely in the long run. So that would be my simple user centered parting words of advice. Yeah, we didn't even get to talk about Agile. <laughs> well, we could always talk about it. Next time. So I know uh, McAfee is hiring UX folks. I don't know if you want to say a few words about that. Sure. Yeah, we have openings in both our Canadian office in the Ontario, uh, the province of Ontario. We have an office in Waterloo and in Toronto. Um, we also have an office in Silicon Valley, Santa Clara. But we're really looking across the U.S. and Canada, not necessarily um, in those cities only, you know, we're looking at remote as a possibility. So we're looking for great UX, uh, professionals that want to really take on the challenge of helping out, you know, $1.5 billion company that just went public again, <laughs> um, and has a established name in the space of security, go out and do great things. Um, it's not a perfect place, but we're making it great. And that's what I'm excited about. Just helping it become better than, um, than the competition and, uh, and making, making a big impact on, on the, the small intersection of great user experience and security. And that's what we're after. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm on LinkedIn. People can reach out to me there. Uh, I do use Twitter as well. Christian Rohr. Well, thank you, Christian, so much. This was super interesting and I, I learned something. So I hope that our listeners learned something as well. Thank you so much for your time. Well, I want to thank you, Heidi. It, what you're doing is so important and helpful to our industry, both security and user experience. So thank you for doing what you're doing.